Thank you for listening in to the King's Chapel podcast. We hope this message is a blessing to you. Please stay tuned after the message for more information about King's Chapel. Hello again. And, uh, you know, Pastor's right. I, I don't have those lenses on my eyes at all. I, I'm just here to sow spiritual seed into uh, King's Chapel congregation. So I don't think about any of the other stuff. He can think about that. I like to stay in the zone. <clears throat> so... Uh, I don't know how many of you do this regularly. Debbie and I uh, go to the gym regularly. Don't laugh and don't mess with me. <laughs> but I, uh, I can tell when I forget my uh, pre-workout diet Mountain Dew. And then I, I get on the cardio machine and... Uh, Suddenly, my body's screaming at me, Mountain Dew, you know. I don't have the uh, fuel in my tank. I can, I can tell I don't have my elevated level of uh, power. You know, the, the apostles were always misunderstanding Jesus about the kingdom of God, and the power of God. It's an interesting uh, dynamic in the Gospels. If you read the, just the Gospels, the apostles were notorious for getting it wrong. So they were always asking Jesus things like, can I sit at your right hand? Or the three brothers, can we sit at your right hand? And they didn't get anywhere. He would rebuke them, tell them, you know, the kingdom of God does not consist in the things of this world. And so then finally they went and recruited their mom to talk to him. Like uh, an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. You know, when Robert's mom went to the FBI chief on his behalf. It was a great episode. I can see his face right now when he came home after that and he opens the door and he's sitting there with just his face through the crack. They were always getting it wrong. And then there's a group that got it right. And those were the women around Jesus, his inner circle of female friends. They understood. They got it right because they weren't obsessed with power by the world's definition. They wanted uh, the real kingdom, which is found in that relationship and intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we're going to talk about uh, God's empowerment through the Holy Spirit of believers. Acts 1 verses 6 through 8 tells us what that's about. And one final time, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, the apostles get it wrong. (laughs) So they, they say, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to us? Do we get to rule over the world now? Do we? Huh? We get to rule the world, and Jesus, you know, you could just see his head shaking, but he says, you know, the times and seasons are for you to know. So here's here's the deal for you. 
you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost ends of the earth. And the thing is, they were focused still on power by worldly measure. And you know what? Some, some of the power of God's very visible, and we'll see that in just a minute. But a lot of the power of God in the life of the believer is not apparent to people who are seeing through the lens of this age. Because it's not all about the more spectacular, exotic manifestations that people often associate with the power of God. It's primarily, in fact, its purpose is exclusively about bringing you to a place where you are realizing your full potential as a witness to the Lord Jesus Christ in all that you do and all that you say in every way, in everyday ways. And does God do some spectacular things? Does the power of God sometimes uh, appear in spectacular ways? Yes, we're going to see that in just a minute. Sure, but even when the power of God appears in spectacular ways through the eyes of this age, it's still about witnessing to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. There is no other purpose. It's not for us to be able to walk around, you know, singing that song from the 80s. You'll all know the artist. <clears throat> I'm bad. I'm bad. Bad. So bad. You know it. I'm bad. Shamon. I'm bad. Ooh, ooh, baby. That's not, that's not what the power of God is for. And so I want to take you on a brief journey in Paul's life in the book of Acts, because as the book of Acts unfolds from that point, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit's poured out on the day of Pentecost, and the people that received the Spirit on that day proclaimed the mighty deeds of God. And uh, they did this thing that we more commonly know as praying in tongues, uh, or praising or giving thanks in tongues, I'll give you the $64 word if you've never heard it, glossolalia. You can, if you've never heard that word, glossolalia, and you can impress your friends and relatives and they won't know what in the world you're talking about. And as you move on through the book of Acts, and uh, spectacular things happened in Acts 8 in Samaria, uh, through the ministry of Philip, and Acts 10, uh, at Peter's household when the Gentiles received the Spirit, just as the Jewish people had on the day of Pentecost. And I want to bring you on down because a lot of amazing things are happening through these chapters on the way to Acts 19. And I'm going to just introduce the message tonight through Acts 19. But a lot of amazing things were happening 
that were truly supernatural and miraculous that would blow your mind if you were there to see them. But the primary thing that's happening in the book of Acts is the church is expanding, witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ are expanding, and the gospel is being carried to the ends of the earth because God is calling for himself into new creation, a people from every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue. Every single family, tribe, nation, and language group is going to be in new creation forever and ever. It's going to be amazing. In the meantime, uh, we're here, and a lot of believers need a paradigm shift on this one. Because a lot of believers don't have a supernatural worldview. I want to say, I want to say this to you. Even who you are genetically, the DNA, the biological DNA in your bodies is a supernatural work of God. He formed you in your mother's womb. He knew you even before that. And so there's, for a believer, there's nothing mundane. Everything is the hand of God for us. Even though through the, through the paradigm, through the framework of this age, of this world, of this reality, it might seem to be mundane. There's nothing mundane for a believer. Everything is the hand of God. So in Acts 19, we see, as things are unfolding in that book, we see Paul arrive at Ephesus. In verses 1 through 7, as he first hits town, he comes upon some disciples of, of John. Now, he just calls them disciples. They're believers, but they don't yet know Christian baptism. And when he asks them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, they said basically, what's a Holy Spirit? And so he briefly explains, and then he lays hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit as he's headed into Ephesus. And that's his introduction there. Beginning in verse 8 through 12, you see that Paul spent two years teaching in Ephesus and understand Ephesus was like the capital city of, of that particular region. And it was the leading center of idolatry and the leading religion was the cult of Diana, the goddess Diana of the Romans. The, the Greek speaking population of Ephesus called her Artemis of the Ephesians. And so Ephesus was a particularly occult, uh, evil, demon-dominated city. And Paul hits for two years and teaches the things about Jesus. And at the end of two years, the entire region had been informed about who Jesus was 
and had received the truth about him. Not everyone had come to Christ, but they knew the truth about him. And then what happens is this. An amazing outpouring of God's power through Paul. Until extraordinary miracles were occurring. It's the only place in the whole Bible where the adjective extraordinary modifies the word miracle. So like, there are your regular miracles, like a resurrection, a healing. These were extraordinary miracles, and the thing Luke points out about these rare, exceptional, extraordinary miracles is that cloths, that had touched Paul's body. And, and don't, don't think right now, if your translation says handkerchief, don't think about the dainty little pansy kerchiefs that some dudes wear in their jackets. They're all folded real cool, you know. Don't think about those. Think about a rag he used to wipe his brow because the dude was a leather worker. Paul made leather goods. He's often called a tent maker. The reason is this, tents were made out of leather. But he made all manner of leather goods. Sandal shoes, scabbards, uh, bags, shields, you name it. Paul was a leather maker and that was how he earned his living. And he did that to support his ministry habit. And so these are the cloths he would use to wipe the sweat off his brow and like that. Wipe his dirty hands from tanning a hide and like that. And those cloths were being carried to the sick and the sick were being healed. Extraordinary! So this was being observed now. People knew what Paul had been teaching for the last two years, and now these amazing miracles break out. Miraculous, supernatural, otherworldly, in other words, intrusions of the new creation into this creation of God's power. Well, while watching the sons of Skevah, who were the sons of the Jewish wanted to be able to do that. They'd been watching the sorcerers of Ephesus do a lot of do a lot of uh, their magic tricks. But now what was happening through the hands of Paul was even more astounding. And so they want to do it, and they've heard Paul pray in the name of Jesus, and they saw what had happened, so they thought, well, there's another, that, that's a better incantation than the ones that we've read about in the scrolls. So they try it. And they found a demoniac, and they were going to cast the demon out in Jesus' name. They did not know something. It reminds me of that scene from Princess Bride 
I know something you do not know. So, they try it, and the demoniac overpowers them, and all of Ephesus sees and hears and knows about this in short order. So, what happens next is remarkable. There's a massive revival in Ephesus because everyone saw the point of comparison. In a place like that, you don't have to convince people that God exists. They have a God, Diana. But God demonstrates that he's the one true God and that his power is infinite and eternal and that whatever they're doing might have some form of power, but it's not God's power. And so there's a massive revival as you read on through that chapter. Thousands came to Christ and the sorcerers of Ephesus came and burned their scroll. <laughs> they burned there. Hello. There we go. I've never been a new, uh, uh, accused of needing one of these. And so when push comes to shove, I just drop them and keep going without one. Because I can do that. Ask my children, Dad, you're yelling. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. I'm not yelling. I don't know this man. So, eyewitness to the, to the power of God being manifested in these extraordinary ways, Ephesus experienced this revival. Uh, those scrolls that were burned that day by the sorcerers were, were worth a fortune. And they burned them because they found what they'd been looking for. They'd been looking for power for all the wrong reasons and in all the wrong places, and now they've been enlightened by the Lord Jesus Christ himself through the Holy Spirit to want power for the right reasons and to find it in the right place. Directly from the source. God the Father who gave his Son for the salvation and redemption of the human race through his Holy Spirit. And that's the person of the Godhood that lives in us and connects with us. If you're a Christian, everything you need in terms of God's power is already living in you because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so again, it's a matter of, have you surrendered to him and and laid yourself down to him in a way that he can manifest himself through you in whatever way he wants. And that's one of the things you'll read about this in 1 Corinthians 12. You have to eat what's, what God puts on your plate. You can seek gifts, but in the end, the Spirit distributes gifts according to his own will. And if a gift isn't God's will for you, 
and it won't help you achieve your maximum potential. He's going to give you what you do need to achieve your maximum potential. Now, I, you know how I am, so I let my hair down. A, a lot of people want the, and Paul dealt with it at Corinth, and you'll see this if you read 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, chapters 12, 13, and 14. Do that on your own time. I'm just going to talk through it. But people in that church wanted the more visible gifts so that they could be known as the big powers of God. And they were competing over who had the more powerful gifts. And Paul rebukes them appropriately. But when you receive God's power, he's doing that to maximize your life, your witness, your effectiveness as his witness. We see that amazingly in Acts 19. Now, while Paul was in the middle of this revival, he wrote 1 Corinthians. So imagine this. Paul's getting out his last piece of leather for the day. A Gucci bag. Has to get it done because this client has some shekels. You know what I mean. Oh, drachmas. Yeah, it's Ephesus. This client has some drachmas. Cloths, he can't go. They come, Paul, my daughter's dying. Paul says, I can't go. I got to get this bag finished here. Take this cloth. And the cloth touches her and she's healed. And while those things are going on, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. And I want you to note what he says about God's power in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 25. We're going to look at that. And you can look in your Bibles or you can look on the screen or if you have one of those fake ones on your phone. I have one on my phone. Where's the one who is, who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? In other words, where are the people who look at reality through the lens or paradigm or framework of this world, this age, this reality that we're in but not of? Because our minds have been transformed. Our spiritual DNA has been revolutionized. We're in this, not of it. But where are the people who are of it who have anything to say? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he's going to tell us what he means by that. Uh, absolutely God made foolish the wisdom of this age, of this world. It's foolishness to God for people to focus on the priorities of sinful human culture. Let's jump into how we live. It's really for people to focus on the priorities of the brainwash that comes to us through all kinds of mediums in America. Commercials, ads in the newspaper, 
No, you just run with it. You hear it on the radio. We're constantly, magazines, uh, books, we're constantly bombarded with a brainwash of this age telling us our priorities should be the priorities of this world. That what's most important to us should be the power as this age defines power. As the world defines power. It's foolishness. And God's made it out to be foolish and he did it in a an amazing way. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews. Let me just pause. It's the same stumbling block that caused the apostles to stumble. The Jewish people wanted a Messiah who would give them power to rule over the whole earth by the definition of this age. Socio-political and economic power over the earth. Domination over all the nations. That day's coming when Messiah will do that, but this is not the time. So it's a stumbling block to Jews and it's, it's foolishness or folly to Gentiles because the Greeks had a whole pantheon and their gods would uh, have wars with each other and, and have UFC matches with each other and the winner would rise, would rise above and get a gigantic kingdom to rule over. And the Greeks loved those guys. They were winners. But the gods who lost would be consigned to the underworld and garbage heaps. And in the Greeks' opinion, who would want to serve a god who lost and is consigned to ruling over a garbage heap somewhere? That's foolishness. So Jesus made no sense to Jews or Greeks because he was crucified. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, and that would be you, you're called to this. You've had a moment when, not because you figured it out, but because the Holy Spirit illuminated your mind and your spirit not to think but to know deeply beyond any empirical evidence, rational knowing, objective knowing, empirical knowing is only one kind of knowledge. The Bible talks about a deeper knowledge where you know in ways that exceed the ability of your intellect. And when you come to Christ, that's the moment you have. The Holy Spirit illuminates you in your deepest space to know this is truth. It's truth. 
and then the Holy Spirit draws you, and then the Holy Spirit, for the first time in your life, empowers you to say yes to God as a lifestyle. You can't even say yes to God unless the Holy Spirit enables you. Now, the Bible teaches everyone that hears the gospel has those moments, and God can do it miraculously where he just speaks directly to someone, and they know this is truth, and he can reveal directly. The rule is, though, we send preachers, missionaries, etc. Ready? God sends you. into your environment and into your contexts. And people have moments they just know deeply, profoundly, because the Holy Spirit is at work in them in that moment. This is truth. And he gives them the ability to say, yes, God, I'm in. I accept Jesus Christ. But it's foolishness to a lot of people because they can't break out of their very restricted thimbleful of a paradigm. They're, they're trapped in a small, pathetic little world of this age and cannot see the infinite and the eternal to know that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. Yeah. So, Christ is the power of God. You, you see that? Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want the power of God, you need more of Christ. You want wisdom, you need more of Christ. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh. Paul's writing this while the cloths are being carried from his body to heal the sick. Paul's writing this while thousands are coming to Christ in Ephesus. Paul's writing this while the sorcerers are burning their scrolls down in the public square. He's writing, 1 Corinthians. This was his opening statement right out of the gate. His initial shot across the bow. And you know, at Corinth, they had a failure of leadership. Their leadership had become corrupt and adopted the ways of the world. And that really got to Paul because he understood the power of God and its relationship to what the world sees as weakness. Read a description of Paul when he talks about an apostle. The Corinthian leader said, an apostles, uh, uh, let's see the values of the Greek culture. Ap apostles are uh, uh, handsome, educated, uh, eloquent, and have athletic prowess. 
they smart, they've been, they've been through graduate school, got a law degree, or whatever, and, and they're athletic, and, and they look good. That's an apostle. Can you see, Paul, that's, now I'm paraphrasing in our terms, but, well, maybe not your terms, but my terms. And that's what Paul was thinking through as he wrote. Those guys have it all wrong. And he says this explicitly. It's not about your eloquence. It's about God's power. It's not about your wisdom and your ability to figure things out and market well and be engaged in high-level strategy. They have enthroned strategy over the Lord Jesus Christ at Corinth. Paul rebukes them two, on your own time, 2, 1 to 4, chapter 2, 1 to 4, powerful statement. Read all the way through verse 16 so you get the whole picture. 2, 1 through 16. Something happened in Paul's life that unlocked God's power in an unusual, extraordinary way. And I want to take you there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Something unlocked God's power in Paul's life. And it happened before he was at Ephesus, but it happened extraordinarily while he was in Ephesus. Right after he left Ephesus, he wrote 2 Corinthians. And the first nine chapters are conciliatory because Paul thought that the leaders at Corinth had read his first epistle and acquiesced to his leadership and bought in to the values that he lays out in 1 Corinthians. And so the first nine chapters are very conciliatory. And then apparently, while Paul's on the road, Ephesus just recently behind him, he got another note from someone at Corinth, maybe Chloe, but he got word from Corinth, uh, the leaders at Corinth are up to the same thing again. So if you want to read writing from Paul at a time when his word processor was the most overheated of his entire life, as far as we know, of everything in the New Testament. You think Galatians is hot? Read 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 12. This is a chapter where he tells the Corinthian pastors, oh yeah, you're, they're claiming to be apostles. Oh yeah, yeah, you bad, all right, you apostles. Yeah, you're apostles. Apostles of Satan. I'm quoting, some of you are looking at me like, he wouldn't say that. Oh, yes, he would. You're apostles of Satan. You're imparting a false gospel, a false Christ, and a false spirit to these people. And you're going to pay. It's, it's rough going these three chapters, 12, 7 through 10. Paul gets to the bottom line. Remember what we saw in 1 Corinthians about Jesus and God's weakness is stronger than man. Crucified, a stumbling block and foolishness and 
12, 7 to 10, Paul gives us an insight into what unlocked God's power in his life. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, because Paul was self-aware that God had been giving him these amazing revelations. And so to keep him from being too elated, some of your translations will read, to keep me from becoming conceited. This would also work to keep me from becoming arrogant. Any of those could stand as translations there of that word elated. To keep me from becoming too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So he knows God's giving him these extraordinary moments, surpassing greatness, amazing power of God being unleashed in Paul's life. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming too elated, from, to keep me from becoming conceited, to keep me from becoming arrogant. And so, I want to start there. Uh, you can't touch God's glory. Don't touch it. When God's power is released in your life, if you become elated over that, if you become conceited, if you become arrogant, if you're like the Corinthian leaders, that's right. I'm, that's right. And you walk around with that attitude. I'm all that. You're elevating yourself. And anyone who elevates himself or herself is inviting God's retribution because that's to attempt. He would never allow it to happen, but you're attempting to take his glory. And so God knew Paul, and although it's in the passive, I received a thorn in the flesh. The point is God's point. No, no matter how this happened, this messenger from Satan, and it's debated about what that is, uh, the most common theory, it's just a theory, is that, you know, in the New Testament and in the book of Acts and some of Paul's writings, he talks about his eye disease. And so he had to have a helper often because when his, his eye disease would come and go. So there were times when he could see, but there were times when he was legally blind and he needed someone to guide him. He needed somebody to get his groceries for him, do stuff for him. So, you know, he had Onesimus and he had Epaphroditus. He had various helpers in his lifetime, especially when his eye disease would sort of wax stronger and he would spend at least some periods of time Legally blind. Now, that's just a theory. We don't know exactly what this was, but we know its effect. We know the result of this thorn in the flesh was it kept Paul from becoming conceited, arrogant, or elated over power. 
When the disciples came back after Jesus sent the 70 out and the disciples came back saying, whoa, man, we healed the sick. We cast out demons. Jesus said, yeah, I know. I saw Satan fall from heaven. And then he says these words, don't rejoice over God's power. Rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Re rejoice at your salvation. Don't rejoice because you have power. So it doesn't matter what the thorn was, really. It's the result that's the important thing. No one knows exactly what it was, but we know what it did. It kept Paul in the proper spiritual relationship with God. That's, this is a part of spiritual power people don't often uh, talk about or enjoy. But if you want God's power, he has a cup for you to drink. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He, if you want God's power, God's going to take you to some difficult spaces to make sure you keep your head squared away. You keep your mind right. You don't let your mind fall into the trap of this reality. You keep your mind right with new creation reality because your mind has been renewed and transformed, not conformed to this world, but conformed to God's kingdom by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is to keep Paul's mind right. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Those are the words of the Lord to Paul. My grace alone is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect. My power is manifested only in weakness. So you want God's power first, you have to get to this place. Everything in my life is grace. You need to be able to say that. Every last thing in my life is grace. It's God's favor. It's not because I created myself in my mother's womb. And then I provided all the right circumstances for myself so that in my life's journey, I came to have God's power because I figured it out and after all, I deserve it. Backwards. That's backwards. You can't earn this. You're an object of God's grace. The only reason that you exist and the only reason that God led you to that moment when the Holy Spirit could illuminate your mind and say to you, this is truth, and you knew it beyond any, not reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt at all, you knew it's true and you received him. And from that moment on, everything that's happened in your Christian walk and journey with Christ as you've journeyed, everything is grace including your genetic abilities.
if you're smart, grace. If you're healthy, grace. It doesn't matter what it is. The list goes on. It's grace. Everything is grace. And his grace alone is sufficient for you. When uh, Debbie and I went out to lead Capital Church and get that started in Salt Lake City, we ended up being there seven years. This moment with Debbie sitting beside me, uh, our first Sunday we had uh, about 130 people when we opened our first public service. We'd been meeting in the basement of our home with a core partner group. And our first public service, we advertised. You know, we, that's just common sense. You don't enthrone it, but you, you use your sense. You want to be as wise as, you know, you can be and things like that. So you want people to know you exist. And so we had advertised, marketed, et cetera. We had 130. Six weeks later, I had managed to grow the church from 130 to 60. And I turned to Debbie and said, everything they told me has come true. Because before we went, we were told by a lot of key people in our lives that we were, quote, flushing everything we'd ever worked for down the toilet, end quote. We were told, quote, impossible, end quote. We were told, it's going to be a catastrophe. You're going to be ruined. And in that moment, I felt like, they're right. Here, I drug you all out here. I don't remember everything I said, but I drug you all out here. The kids are forever going to be humiliated because... Dad drugged them out here and then it just went down the tubes. It was one of the lowest points I've ever had, you know. What do you do? Just prayed. We couldn't have done what happened in Salt Lake City. It was just grace. God taught us a lot about this right here. We worked hard. You know, we did everything we could do, but it was a thimbleful because God came through to, and did things that I never could have done. Like getting that property right, right there by the University of Utah. There was no way. And it came to us, it was miraculous. Just etc. I can't write the book, 27 Things I Did to Grow a Great Church. I, I'll never write that book. There are books out there like that. I'll never do it. Because it would have... One sentence. God's grace was sufficient for us. Second thing is you have to let go. You have to lay down your agenda. My power is manifest only in weakness. Weakness goes way deeper than a lot of people think. You have to make yourself weak. And you know what the most difficult thing for a pit bull type A is to do? Agenda. 
goals, plans. You have to lay those down. You have to make yourself weak in every way so that God can do what he wants to do. You know, you might come right back to the same agenda. We didn't, but God can bring you right back to the same agenda you've had, except now you know for sure it's his. And it's kind of scary, I'll admit it. I had some fear. I had some days when I asked God to relent, I couldn't take anymore. I would tell him I need a day off or two. Debbie was with me once. We were down in Jackson, Mississippi, and we were in a hotel, and it was bedtime, and we're in bed reading, and Debbie turns to me, so what do you think about Salt Lake City? I said, my brain's fried about it. I don't want to talk about it or think about it. I need a week off. And I t- grabbed the remote and turned on the television set. Never do this. If God is in the place of taking you to weakness, pruning, crushing sometimes, reworking the clay until it's soft again, if, 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 if you're in that space with him, don't turn on the TV at a key moment. So I said, I don't even want to think about it. I need a week off. I turn on the television. This all happened in a few seconds. Takes me longer to tell it. A weather map of the western United States came up and there were these little flames flickering over Salt Lake City and off the coast of California was a hurricane. And the meteorologist said, this is right after I said, I don't want to think about it, talk about it, my brain's fried, I need a week off. Click wildfires burning out of control in Salt Lake City. Meanwhile, Hurricane Douglas is bearing down. <laughs> Look it up, July of 1996, Hurricane Douglas. It had a different name in Mexico. When it hits the United States, they changed the name. And I don't remember the Spanish name it had, but when it crossed over the narrow part and came into the Pacific and up the coast to Southern California, they named it Douglas. You can look it up. 1996, Hurricane Douglas. So Debbie's howling. And I'm sitting there, and as I recall, I just said, God would not do this. (laughs) You have to be willing to go to a place of weakness. And it's unique for everyone. But whatever it is for you, the Holy Spirit will make it clear to you. You know, most of what we need to do to please God, the vast majority of it's right here. If people come and want to talk to me about spiritual gifts, I start with the fruit of the Spirit. And oftentimes they say, well, I want to talk about, I came to talk about spiritual gifts, not the fruit of the Spirit. And I always say, if we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we are talking about spiritual gifts. And I'll tell you, 
the underlying reason. Prophecy is very destructive unless it's seasoned with wisdom and other fruits of the Spirit. You can't just turn someone loose with a spiritual gift who doesn't have underneath that the foundation of real biblical spirituality. So they use it well and wisely and in ways that build up and don't tear down. So however God gets you there is going to be unique to you. While the Bible tells us things like that, 98%, there's still a small percentage that's unique to you that you find out about directly from God through the Holy Spirit. You hear God's voice. The Spirit talks. He has a voice. He'll take you to a place of weakness if you want God's power. You must be willing to go to a place of weakness if you want God's power. A space you realize grace alone. Hey, it's Holy Spirit Weekend, Spiritual Emphasis Weekend. Tonight's about God's power being released in the lives of his people, everyone in this room. And so even if you're already there, it's always good to renew this. Are you willing to go to a place of weakness with the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit take you to a place of weakness where God's power can be released in your life. Now would be a good time to pray. Thanks again for checking out this week's message. If you are interested in finding out more about King's Chapel, please visit our website at kingschapel.church. There you can find service times and more ways to connect with us. You can also follow us on social media at kingschapelsgf. We look forward to seeing you soon.